Hello, listeners. You're listening to Law Talk, part of the Law and Legend Storytelling Podcast series. In part one, we discussed our Halloween episodes and the villains and monsters that populated those dark tales. In part two, of Parrots and Porridge Ones, we follow up on some of the folklore from episodes of series one, which we've continued to unearth in our research and storytelling experiences. talked about the buried moon in the last law talk episode mm-hmm. um philip pullman mm-hmm. his dark materials yes um the series has just started um and he released his latest book in the secret commonwealth secret commonwealth that was uh, one of my birthday presents so i'm gonna start that soon was it uh, yeah. i i haven't read it or bought it yet um but apparently um one of the chapters in the book includes uh, a retelling of um, the buried moon or the mm-hmm. dead moon. Um, Simon Haywood in January will be having a guest episode with him. Yep. But uh, Simon was taking him to task a bit because apparently he um, he says that he calls this chapter, he says that it's inspired by the great work of Catherine Briggs, uh, who in Folk Tales of Britain, where I first read the story of the dead moon. And basically Simon's taking a bit of issue with uh, this this crediting because mm. as we talked about uh, in, in the discussion afterwards. Yes. It was a working class girl that tale originates from. Yes, it was collected by, um, sorry, Catherine Briggs? Not by Catherine Briggs originally. Um, Mrs. Marie uh, Clot, I'm not, how, not sure how to spell, how to say this name, Clothield? <laughs> uh, Marie Clothield Balfour, mm. um, who recorded it, she recorded it for posterity, and Catherine Briggs got it from her. Mm. And he says that, um, I mean, like, obviously sometimes it can be a bit difficult um, when you get folk tales from all these different collections and things. Um, but Simon was basically saying that, you know, he, sh- he should have done his research a bit better on that matter. Yes. You know, so <laughs> what he put it in his words, uh, Pullman wouldn't do this to Milton or Blake, so why is he doing it to Fanny Bratton? Um, <laughs> So that was the girl's name, Fanny Bratton. Yeah. And um, uh, Maureen James has uh, did a PhD um, where she was specifically talking about, because we mentioned in the episode as well, some people said that the folk, the folk tale was sort of too imaginative, too kind of gothic. And, you know, they, it, it must have been invented mm. um, by the, the middle class writer. <laughs> Um, which, uh, you know, Simon's saying a very classist kind of thing to say. Yeah. Um, and uh, Maureen James uh, was basically trying to establish the um, the authorship of it, and she uh, uh, tentatively identified um, uh, Fanny Bratton as one Agnes Bratton, who lived in uh, North Lincolnshire around Crowell, and apparently died in the mid-20s. So, yeah, it was great, great that, um, a tale like the buried moon is getting into wider circulation, but you know, good to highlight that these these texts didn't originate with the middle class people who collated them and edited them, yes. and and I think I think we said as well in the original episode, but just to reiterate it, you know, a lot of the fantastic imagery 
uh, in the buried moon comes straight from the original source. Yes. So sometimes we try to make something sound poetic and some of that is us. Mm. But most of the fantastic imagery in the buried moon comes comes straight from um Fanny Bratton. From Fanny Bratton. But yes, so. it's um yeah, there's a reason they call it folklore. Yeah. Uh, just like folk music. <laughs> it may well have been collected and written down by middle class people, but uh um... Yeah, Simon says that his own theory about the buried moon and why it's so different and and might be very original to her is he thinks it was a he thinks that she may have heard uh, a moonraker joke, and that's quite a common sort of folk funny tale about an, an idiot who tries to to catch the moon when he sees it in a puddle, and he reckons that. She might have heard one of those jokes, like in the pub or something, and then worked it up into this like much more elaborate narrative. Um, yeah, that would, that's which cool. is really great. Have you heard me tell the story of the moon in Maori folklore? I haven't. No. It there's the moon is trying to hide, and one of the ways in which it tries to hide is that it submerges itself into a reflection so it's caught <laughs> by this pool of water right such that when it, they look for it in the sky you can't find it uh. so similar sort of thing it comes down and is yeah. caught in a pool that's, that's a very very similar story isn't it but it goes in a very different direction because then the pool then gets evaporated and then it rises <laughs> back up into the cloud so it's a uh, yes there's that's there are classic. similarities, but um, yeah, it's not, not quite the same thing. Um, the two names, there's the dead moon and the buried moon. It's very striking that the, the things that they, the villagers go out looking for is, uh, you know, a cross, a, a candle, a, you know, corpse candle. You know, one of these will-o'-the-wisps. Mm. Will-o'-the-wisps, sometimes called corpse candles, when they appear around graveyards. Um... And a coffin, which turns out to be the stone, and the, the stone that gets rolled away. Mm. And so you have this moon that either dies or is buried. You go looking for a grave, and then it it's it returns to the sky. It seems like right. a resurrection. Thing. It's a sort of especially uh, rolling of away the stone. Yeah, yeah. So that's another um, interesting. Mm. Component. <laughs> On the topic of Philip Pullman and his most recent uh, things with the Book of Dust, um, I can't remember if I mentioned this uh, when we did Cherry of Zena, but um, there's there's an element of the the the, the sight and uh, the, the sort of sight that the ointment applied to the eyes gives you because there's a a traditional a tra- tradition of if you apply the ointment to one eye, you can see. The beautiful uh, spectacle of uh, of Elfland. You can see the fabulous palaces and the things that are, you know, wine that is sweeter than any other wine, and all this sort of thing. Jewels that sparkle more more brightly and beautifully than any other jewels. Um, but if you apply the ointment to your other eye, then you see the um, uh, the degradation that lies behind it, the decay, the uh, the abandonment of virtue. Um, which seems like a very sort of um, Christian moralist kind of thing to try and um, tell you that as, as good as as the, the 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 good as the sort of pagan traditions seem, 
they are empty and without um, the, 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 the promise of the Lord. Well, it comes up in, uh, in the Book of Dust where he sees this you know, beautiful, wonderful palace but then if he looks just above the row of the, the hedges, I think, then he sees a land which is barren and destroyed. And, and he's it, trying to sort of reconcile these two images at a moment when then, then the story moves on very quickly. Mm. It will be interesting to see how the book, the book of Dust is much more heavily introducing fairy lore into mm. the Dark Materials series. Yeah. So it will be interesting to see how dust and fairyland are um, explained and brought together. Yeah. Cool. The other thing we were talking about in connection with the Buried Moon was uh, book bears. Yeah. And I said that, we've, that there was a, um, a play called The Book Bears. Uh, so I've had a download of the book that that appears in. Uh, to find out if there's any more information about bugbears. <laughs> Not a lot, unfortunately. At this stage as well, bugbear does just seem to have been a name for spirits. Mm. Um, the bugbears is actually an English translation and adaption of a Italian play right. that was just called The Spirits. Right. So bugbears is obviously just uh, a cognate for that. Yeah. But um, it's quite fun. The, the play is basically about... Um, a, a young lad uh, and a uh, girl who want to get married. Right. Uh, but their father wants to marry them to somebody else. Instead, somebody who's uh, got more money who can pay the dowry. Yeah. <laughs> so they hatch this scheme for the daughter to uh, appear as possessed by spirits. Yeah. Demanding not to be married to the person who uh, who the father's set his, set yeah. his sights on. Uh, meanwhile, they ha- they get their uncle to steal money from the father and convince him that the spirits have stolen it and give it to the boy so that he can give it to the father as dowry for the girl. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that uh, that's there in the Dark Tower... So we talked about Widdishins and going three times around the churchyard mm-hmm. uh, and how that had resemblance to this uh, Swedish folk tradition of the year walk, this mm. kind of divination ritual. Apparently the full kind of like uh, year walk, you walk, circle the church or the graveyard, but apparently kind of like a more, a minor version of this ritual was done by going around your own house three times, Widdishins, mm. with something called a porridge scepter. <laughs> You're like, a what? A porridge scepter? A ladle? <laughs> and I didn't know what this might be, so I started, is that a thing? And I started, I started, I started looking into it and... Bring um, me the porridge scepter. Found out that there's basically this um, sort of wooden stick for stirring porridge. There was an entry in sort of a, a, a Swedish or Norwegian version of Wikipedia for this... Uh, thing the porridge scepter or porridge wand basically just seemed to be kind of like a stick a branch you know it was a it was a gnarly branch that's what it was um, but in researching it i also found out that there's um, a scottish implement which is basically a porridge wand called a spurtle so it's a yeah it's a traditional implement for oh, for stirring porridge my parents have a spurtle <laughs> yeah i was wondering this when i had porridge scepter I, 
I've never known why how we've come to own this 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 object, but yeah, no, I recognise literally the shape of that. Well, I've, at the top, I've I've since discovered that we have a spurtle in this house as well. Somebody <laughs> made a wood, a wood turning workshop, um, and there's actually a, a world porridge making championship every September up in Scotland, uh, which awards the golden spurtle as its main prize. Apparently, a, a piece of folklore about the spurtle is that you you shouldn't stir your porridge anti-clockwise <laughs> with your spurtle, otherwise the devil might appear. Ah. And somebody seemed to say that there might be some relationship between spurtles, the devil appearing, and Macbeth, but they couldn't they they didn't say what the connection was. Oh. And I actually contacted the World Porridge Making Championships and said, "Do you know any more folklore about the spurtle?" Uh, the person I contacted didn't seem to know anyone. Um, <laughs> I'm not surprised. So this is a this is an open call to anybody who knows anything about spurtles or spurtle folklore. If you if you've got any stories about um, about the uh, the supernatural properties of a spurtle, and if you just want to send us in, you know, odd and occult things that might have happened to you and your spurtle, <laughs> you can find us at lawandlegend.co.uk. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, it, it's obviously. A spurtle looks like a wand. Yeah. Um, so it sort of seems like it might be the repurposing of a, a household implement as a, as a, a magical vessel. Yeah. Um, but I thought that was quite cool. Mm. Oh, which brings me on, actually, to something I, I have had to, I've got to say, is that um, I told the Curse of Pantanus at um, a event, a Storyforge event, uh, the storytelling club in Sheffield and um, when I told it obviously it features a fairy ring in it and um, I've never ever heard anyone do a story involving a fairy ring at any live storytelling event that I've ever been at and the story directly before mine <laughs> had a fairy ring in it and not only that but the characters who interact with it go nine times round the ring Widdershins. Uh-huh. And it's upon the ninth turn around the ring that suddenly they fall and thrall to its power. Right. So it was a nice sort of joining up of those two traditions where, once again, you go round Widdershins such that you are exposed to the, to the other world, uh, but this time concerning the fairy ring as well. I learned one of my friends uh, knows French, so when she, we were talking about the Laidley worm, she pointed out that uh, Laidley is originally a French word, okay, which makes sense, you know, with our Norman history, you know, loan yeah. words and things. So laid, uh, French laid means ugly, so that's where Laidley, Laidley mm. comes from. And uh, we, we talk about this on the blog posts, um, but uh, one one thing that we uh, that we didn't mention in the in the discussion when we were talking about the Laidley worm is that um, I I looked up the Bridal Rock online and saw some photographs of it, but I always imagined the Laidley worm to be sort of huge. Yeah. But then through looking at some uh, some artwork that was actually done by uh, sort of a painter and folklorist to realise that the Bridal Rock is really quite small. <laughs> and the reason that, that um, 
child wind throws his horse's bridle over it is not because he's taking it off his horse, but he's literally tying up his horse <laughs> <laughs> on this convenient post, which is the bridle rock. So the fact that the Laidly Worm twines around the bridle rock suggests, as as many many of these kind of like dragon-like creatures were in sort of the older legends, yeah. that they're actually much smaller <laughs> yeah. than the kind of dragons we traditionally imagine. I was in uh, Prague with a Scottish friend of mine and we passed uh, a statue of St. George and the Dragon. Mm. And the dragon really does more than anything resemble... A small scaly dog. Yes, it's like a raptor or something. Yeah, and, uh, underneath and, the horse's feet. And I, I cannot express to you how disappointed she was <laughs> in 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 the notion of what uh, Saint George was meant to be um, accomplishing here. Uh, I don't think she was particularly well disposed towards the notion of Saint George anyway. But the idea that his grand feat of slaying a dragon was. Him essentially putting a spear in a little raptor <laughs> um, just didn't cut it. And I have to say, yeah, it doesn't really give you the sort of sense of a grand hero, a man who, you know, makes something he could probably It makes you think less of Child Wind and his knights that they couldn't get past it up the beach <laughs> because there's a whole boatload of them, <laughs> but, but they were fought off by it. Which is which is why I say in the in the blog post that I actually quite like to imagine that one of the magical abilities of the Lovely Worm is actually to change its size, because that's quite a cool kind of like supernatural yeah. idea. Um, and that shape-shifting quality is a thing that fey creatures frequently have. Yeah. Um, but I do... Well, I, I have to do a story someday with one of these smaller dragons as like a vicious raptor kind of thing <laughs> and get that across, because there are... The core potentials in that as well. Yeah. The raptors were the scariest things in Jurassic Park. That's true. So. Yeah. There's, there's <laughs> mileage. But there were many of them. There were. <laughs> um, but they didn't have fiery breath. So yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I realised, thinking back on it, that one of the things that I really like about uh, Lady Isabel is the... Um, the slightly odd role of the parrot. Did they noble have, lords have parrots? I think I brought this up when we spoke about this the first time round. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't sure. So, I wanted to know the answer. And I went looking. Uh, I found a book called Parrot Culture. Uh, our 2,500 year long fascination with the wor- world's most talkative bird by uh, Bruce yeah. Thomas Burra, which just goes to show that if you want to learn the history of anything, you, you know, there will be a book on it somewhere. Um, That's true. I, uh, I launched into this book with the question, was it plausible for a medieval lord and his daughter to have a bird? And the, fir- <laughs> the first thing that I read when I opened the book is that the oldest parrot known to humankind lived in the south of England. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Uh, yeah, apparently the oldest parrot fossil has been found in England. Oh. Where apparently it f- lived at one point and then died off, uh, mm-hmm. you know, very many, many centuries ago. So that's the first part of the answer to the question is, yes, parrots were found in England <laughs> many, many centuries ago. Yeah. 
Um, had they already died off by the time the Middle Ages swung around? Yes. Yes, yes they had. <laughs> there's a reintroduction <laughs> element of this story. But um, it turns out that there is quite a long history of the parrots. Uh, par- parrots did travel. So uh, the parrots were known to the Romans, uh, were brought from India and all the, lots of um, Roman writers writing about them. And the other great thing about this book is that you learn that there are lots of stories about parrots. Uh-huh. So one of the stories about parrots in the ancient world is that when Caesar came back from his great victories, he was greeted by you know all of the cheering crowds. And he was greeted by two men who trained their birds to say, Hail Caesar. Uh-huh. Um, one of these birds was a parrot. The other apparently was... Uh, a raven or a crow which seems odd (laughs) but uh, Caesar was absolutely delighted with these birds unfortunately one of the bird trainers had recently um, uh, pissed off and sacked one of his employees (laughs) who was hanging around uh, in the crowd when this was going on he promptly shouted out ask him what the other bird says (laughs) So Caesar insists on being shown the other bird, which of course says not Hail Caesar, but Hail Antony. (laughs) 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 But in the medieval period, most of the medieval cultures in the West weren't as familiar with parrots in the flesh Mm. as some of those Roman writers were. But lots of people read the descriptions mm. that those classical authors had of the birds, of the parrots. So it was known quite well in the culture of the time. And so birds gained a reputation and ended up in lots of medieval bestiaries. And the lore that grew up around them was kind of based on some misunderstandings of what people had read. Basically, a lot of medieval authors believed that parrots could talk as in hold a conversation as with in you. hold a conversation with you because they'd read these descriptions which seemed to which basically said oh the, the parrot talks in a voice very much like a man um, and didn't quite get that what they meant is that they were just parroting phrases just yeah. repeating what they heard so this uh, myth grew up that parrots could talk and were therefore exceedingly spiritual birds <laughs> The parrot was the bird of paradise, that they were in the Garden of Eden. And that was one of the reasons, you know, they could hold conversations with Adam and Eve and were sort of a companion and were hence these wise and spiritual birds, which always told the truth. Um, after the fall, they departed uh, from, the, from the Garden of Eden and went to live in the Holy Land on uh, this mountain called Mount Gilboa. So there is a story about a knight who obtains a parrot and he puts it in a cage and he has it uh, in his halls in England and he's, you know, he's very happy with this parrot and he holds conversations with it all the time. Uh, but he goes away to the Holy Land mm. and he's marching around in the vicinity of, uh, of Mount Gilboa and he sees another parrot uh, sitting on the branch and he goes, oh, hail, hail, I have one of your brothers at home, he sits in a cage and I have many fascinating conversations with it. And the parrot inclines its head and its eyes grow wide 
and it falls over backwards from the branch onto the floor. And the knight looks at it and he's horrified. It looks like it's dead and he prods it and it doesn't move. And he's, he's heartbroken. He sheds a tear. And he goes home, he returns from the Holy Lands, he brings gifts for all of his servants. So when he when he comes to the parrot, he says, oh, I saw one of your brethren there in your home at the Holy Land. But alas, the poor creature, she just died on the spot when I spoke to her. And the parrot looks at him and his own eyes grow wide. And he suddenly goes stiff and the parrot falls onto the floor. And the knight says, oh, no, no, no. And he picks up the parrot and he takes it outside to try and try and get some air to its mm-hmm. lungs. You know, he prods it and prods it. And the, and, but the parrot appears to be totally dead. And so he turns away, you know, his arms in his hand. He's crying because he loves this parrot. As soon as he turns away, the parrot hops up and then up onto a nearby branch out of reach of the knight. And he turns around and he says, ah, thank you. Thank you for telling me what my what my brother in the Holy Land said. I'm going to thank him now for his message because he was telling me how I could escape from the cage. <laughs> <laughs> so the there story is that the parrot is clever and cunning. Uh, so as the bird of paradise, parrots were known as popinjays um, and they were often a theme and a motif in uh, decoration and embroidery. Uh, for uh, royalty and aristocrats. Um, So the parrot was quite a high-status bird. It was a high-status symbol. Um, And in fact, in some sources, King Arthur um, encounters a parrot on one of his own adventures. So yes, there's a parrot at King Arthur's court. And in Gawain and the Green Knight, he dons a helmet which has... um, popinjays or parrots inscribed on it and also that became associated with uh, noble ladies and with the virgin mary uh, so i think popinjays appear on the tents of some female characters in these uh, medieval chivalric romances another piece of folklore which was circulated about the parrot was that it liked to drink fine wine author of parrot culture said that he tested out this theory and that he couldn't get his own parrot to drink any wine at all but here's a story about the uh, the drinking habits of parrots so there once there was a wealthy wine merchant who owned a parrot and one day the wine merchant went out and he left the parrot to mind over his store because the parrots very clever animals um, unfortunately the parrot decided that he was going to sample his master's goods and he knocked over several of the ampules of wine and he stood underneath the upturned jar and he let and he let the wine pour into his mouth and down his throat and of course the parrot became absolutely sozzled and when the wine merchant gets back he's so angry with the parrot that he seizes him around the ruff of his neck and he plucks every single last feather from the top of his head so now the parrot is completely bald. A few days later, a young monk, a novice, comes down from the monastery. He's bringing with him the beer and the wine that has been brewed there to sell to the merchant. And rather than some merchant sorting out his order, the novice turns and he sees the parrot inclining his head and gazing at the bald pate of his head. 
because of course the young monk shaved the top of his head because his order is tonsured. And the parrot says, and the bull parrot looks at him and says, Ah, I see that you also have a taste for the master's wine. But another idea about the parrot was that it could that it always told the truth because mm. it was a spiritual bird. So there are a few different versions of this tale, uh, but I like this version of the tale anyway, um, which turns it into a tale not just about the fact that certain parrots tell the truth, but why parrots stopped telling the truth. And the story goes that one day um, there was an old farmer and he stole one of his neighbor's chickens and he cooked it in his pot. He roasted it and he ate it. And the next day his neighbor came around and said, oh, one of my chickens is missing. Do you know what's happened to it? And the farmer says, oh, no, I, I don't know. Maybe it's wandered off. And this parrot is sitting in the corner and it goes, ah, don't tell lies. <laughs> and, the and the farmer goes, no, no, maybe, maybe it, wandered into the woods you know got scared by all of the ghosts and the animals and, and all that kind of thing um and the parrot pipes up again and goes no nah, you know that you roasted it and you ate it shut up don't listen to him and the uh his neighbor goes oh you were always telling me how these parrots always tell the truth so i believe the parrot well he went to the magistrate and the a date was set for them to go to court the, uh, the farmer's thinking he's in a spot above here because everybody knows that his parrot tells the truth. So one night, he takes down the cage, he covers it with a blanket, and he takes a drum and he starts to beat the drum. Boom, 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 boom. And he takes a colander and he pours water for it so that water pours out onto the parrot's cage. And then he takes a candle, flashes light in a mirror at the cage. And so the next day when they go to court, he takes the parrot with him. The parrot gives his testimony. He says, yes, I saw the farmer. I saw him steal the chicken. I saw him cook it. And I saw him eat the whole thing. And the whole court gasps. Oh, well, this is the parrot, which everybody knows tells the truth. And the farmer says, well, you can't trust this parrot's testimony, actually, because I thought he always told the truth. But actually, recently, he's started to tell some really quite bad lies. He said, Ask, ask the parrot what the weather was like last night. And the judge says, well, okay, all right, we'll establish the uh, the truthfulness of the witness. He says, parrot, what, what was the weather like last night? And the parrot goes, oh, the weather was terrible. I could hear the loud thunder in the distance and I could feel the rain came down onto my cage and I got wet through to the bone and I could see the flashes of lightning in the distance. And of course, everybody knew that the weather the night before had been totally clear and balmy. So farmer was exonerated <laughs> and the uh, parrot he took out into the woods with the ghosts and the wild animals. And he let it out and he said, well, for being disloyal, you can live here in the cold forest with the ghosts and with the wild animals and see how well you fare. <laughs> parrot was very very unhappy living out in the wild on its own in the woods and he told the story to the other parrots and from that day on all of the parrots stopped telling the truth <laughs> and started just saying exactly what their owners had said in case <laughs> in case ever... it ever came up in court <laughs>
in case they uh, in case they contradicted them. I mean, we've touched on the fact that the the parrot isn't is an odd addition, or like there is an interesting history to to, to parrots in um in in the Middle Ages. But um, uh, one of the things is that I find it a very um like slightly unnerving element because when the the parrot questions the girl on where she's been, um, and then the girl sort of. Uh, sort of talks back to the parrot and tries, is convincing it not to, to say anything. I don't know what it is, but the something about the way that that's done does make it me sort of like very unnerved by both the girl and the parrot in, in that. In well, that, that might actually make more sense in the light of some of the, uh, the folklore surrounding the parrot. Um, so there are certainly lots of legends about parrots in the medieval era and it's plausible that parrots might occasionally have ended up overseas in Europe um, but a lot of these were stories rather than actual encounters with parrots and the sort of uh, amazing uh, abilities um, of the parrot kind of feed off this. It's quite difficult to know where some of these tales originated because it's, it's important to point out that the book on parrot culture does focus overwhelmingly on um, the history of the parrot in Europe and in the West. But a lot of the stories that are in there, for instance, the, the story about the, the English knight who goes to the Holy Land. Um, I first read um, a variant of that tale uh, in a book of Persian folklore, the story that I told about why the parrot uh, stops telling the truth. Um, there are quite a few different variations of that one. The version that I told is actually from a book of folk tales from Thailand. Um, there's a version in the parrot culture book um, that's a little bit different, um, which also appears in the Arabian Nights and uh, it's a slightly different situation to the merchant and the, the parrot is set by a husband to watch over an unfaithful wife. And this seems to be a bit of a recurring motif with the parrot, the idea that uh, as a truth teller, it's uh, also employed by uh, men wronged by their women. <laughs> Most interesting discovery is that there is, a, there is actually a whole collection of folk tales uh, called the 72 or the 70 tales of the parrot and it's like a slight mirror image to the Arabian Nights because the whole setup of the story is the idea that a, um, a wealthy man has gone traveling and he leaves his wife in the care um, of his parrot um, and every night the, uh, the woman uh, is about to set out to look for, for a lover to commit adultery with and the parrot prevents her from doing so by um, telling her stories night after night until the husband returns. And, and through these stories, uh, teaches her about the, uh, the ill consequences of, of infidelity, um, even though the woman keeps threatening to kill the parrot. So it's interesting, and it does uh, rather give truth to the, the observation uh, if you put the Arabian Nights next to... Uh, the 70 tales of the parrot, uh, that uh, men are afraid that women will make fools of them um, and uh, women are afraid that men will kill them uh, as the 
you know, the Sultan is, is threatening to do in the Arabian Nights. So yes, I've ordered myself a copy of the uh, the seventy details of the parrot. Uh, that will be arriving soon. And so yeah, all of those different tales um, kind of provide a bit of background, a bit of context to the appearance of the parrot in the Lady Isabel tale. Uh, so we've got a parrot um, that can apparently converse with the lady, uh, which also sort of appears to be a bit of a night watchman. Um, guarding the lady, uh, questioning her motives, where she's been, what she's been doing uh, on her father's behalf. And then this subversion of the idea that the parrot always tells the truth but can also be uh, quite clever and quite cunning because Lady Isabel um, offers him a reward, a a golden cage, a gilded cage, if he will uh, lie to her father about where she's been, which he then proceeds to do. Also, the... uh, the animosity between the parrot and the cat, which is something else that seems to come up in a couple of the versions of these tales. Yes, so there you go, the folklore of the parrot. Um, a fascinating subject that I wouldn't have really gotten into unless, uh, unless uh, it had been there in the ideas of our time. In the next segment, we're presenting some material originally recorded for the last episode of Lore and Legend, which we had to cut to keep the series finale to time. We didn't want to throw it away, however, because we had an interesting discussion about just what it means to be a storyteller and to be enthusiastic about folk narratives in the context of our contemporary world. Stories do get used a little bit as a sort of uh, nostalgia tool uh, dream up uh, a, a land that was better in the past um, a land that was maybe uh, purer and less tarnished by the the actions of humankind and it, it is easy to sort of jump onto that with you know the way that you sort of feel like there was a lot of natural land that is no longer and uh, things like Sherwood Forest are sort of just a bit absurd when you try and compare them to the space that Robin Hood is. I mean, personally, my my connection with stories is not based on that kind of uh, yearning for the past, because as you've said, you know, we might all, very few of us actually wish to be living in a medieval village, pooing into a river, yeah. and then <laughs> drinking from the same river. Um, but I think that for me, at least, the, you know, because when you tell stories to children, you know, there is the idea that you will then get their minds working of other possibilities and kind of going beyond what they know to what could be and picking up stories that we know very well and that, like, draw on and influence stories that we've we probably heard uh, or read or knew when we were younger gives that sort of much a very present sense to the imagination um, which I think is is kind of one of the reasons why I like the idea of keeping that storytelling tradition alive is that it keeps sort of very uh, near seeming kind of imagination space storytellers talk about you know different kinds of storytelling and different reasons for doing storytelling and uh mentioned Tim, Tim Ralph's, you know, he talks, spoken to him before about people who uh, 
consider themselves to be tradition bearers and you know there are people who you know will tell stories and they won't change anything in a story at all because that's what they feel their purpose is it's to be mm. a tradition bearer it's to tell the tales as we know them uh in the way as much as possible in the way that they were told and you know some storytellers also mix that with an interest in, in history and all of that kind of thing um so yes, the, there is almost is a sense in which like folklore can feel very nostalgic and almost anachronistic because because it's it's fallen so much out of our habits and present culture to mm. engage with and tell these tales. But that's something that's actually very specific, you know, to our culture at the moment anyway, you know. You know, people did know these tales very well you know as recently as like the 50s or 60s or whatever you know and they've fallen out of our cultural repertoire as mm. we've become you know capitalism has created a capitalist society where you know it's all coming through tv and radio and books almost this kind of like local resources has become much more thinly spread and not appreciated as much. I mean, it's interesting you mention it being capitalism in the sense that, like, coming through TV and radio and things like that is partially just the movement of technology. I, there is that other sense of a, a kind of product where everybody's writing their own books and producing their own movies and there, as you've spoken about before, there is a sort of uh, fi- fixation on being original yes and you know copyright is about yes. story and narrative as product isn't it yeah um you know, as, well, you know one of the things that people kind of have to think about quite a lot now new things about sort of like cultural appropriation and stuff which mm. people didn't talk a lot about before when it came to folklore and you know comparing that to copyright you know people who are very opposed to like talking about cultural appropriation and stuff you know would nevertheless instantly recognize somebody's right to own something as an author or a product yeah and it's almost like you know we're not used to thinking about things as products uh, of cultures needing protection and and perhaps having rights Mm. and protections attached to them Um, and that's and so it's difficult and controversial for that reason but yeah yeah, I mean you could have TV and radio in a non-capitalist society but it's all kind of grown up together hasn't it as the you know the sources of those these those social the social production of story and narrative is kind of like very different got a very different Mm. kind of well, the thing I was actually going to, to, to agree with on the, um, in the sort of angle of thinking about it in terms of capitalist mode of production is um, the, the idea of it as a product flows very well with this kind of notion of preserving the stories and aspect. Because what you're buying, what you're getting, what you're going in for is the past you're going in for oh you want to be a traditional person you want to be um uh, sort of archaic and and old um you know this mixing of of traditions this 
you know, you're doing old things, but in a slight, you know, in a, in a, in a different way is that's not uh, compartmentalizable and saleable, saleable in the same way. It's not a, um, uh, it's not a sort of definite identity that can be sort of catered to, which I guess is one of those things where if what you want to sell the people is the old and the traditional and the, you want it to be as 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 fixed as it sort of can be so that you know what your audience is and not to say that capitalism hasn't sort of transcended that um in more recent years and sort of people wanting to do kind of oh we'll do this but a sort of quirky adaptation of it <laughs> cinderella but in a high school um which is 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 almost kind of like going you know we, we know we have this audience and we also know that we have this audience so why don't we just sort of cram them together um <laughs> well you know I, I don't think we can escape from the you know the idea that you know we we do a podcast about law and legend because I've you obviously you know I I obviously do go in for the nostalgia of history in in a big mm. way and you know in some ways like sometimes I enjoy modern adaptions but you know like Cinderella or Shakespeare set in a modern high school sometimes really doesn't appeal to me because yeah. it loses the things that are interesting and uh, there's a relationship isn't there almost between the idea of this storytelling as an archaic form and the archaic nature of the material mm. and the set because there's a very big um you know there's a there's a part of me that's like well it would be great if you went to a storytelling club and people you know stood up and started telling modern tales as well like as more fiction than you know personal and autobiographical people do yeah. do that it's not something i'm particularly interested in as an audience member mm. um folk tale motifs and things you know they come up so often that they are like classified uh, yeah. you know there are scholars who've classified them and what's the modern equivalent of that it's um you know the i don't know if you've ever been on the tv tropes website uh, um, yeah. and i almost think you could go on there and you could create archetypical tales out of popular culture, mm. like um, from all of those tropes. And that might be cool and it might work really well. But there is almost a sense in which because people don't stand up and tell stories anymore, you know, they either write or they, you know, they create novels or all these kind of things that... Um, you know, it's almost is this like full immersion thing of of creating very detailed worlds with elaborate backstories rather than archetypical characters. And so there's like a gulf now between the archetypical characters of the past yeah. and our quite quite modern world. Which, which one of the things about contemporary culture is that the world has changed so much in such a relatively short period of time, if you think yeah. about it, you know, like Hansel and Gretel and um, the, the Elf and Knight and all these kind of things. In, in a way, like they they seemed of a piece of, and of a telling for possibly, you know, generations, centuries. Mm. And then suddenly after, suddenly as we get into the 20th century, suddenly it's all like, oh, it doesn't seem very relevant to our world anymore because the way that we've lived has changed so drastically in such a short But it is, it is, time. There, there is definitely a lot of truth in that, but there's, interestingly, a sort of counter to that is the way that 
throughout history, throughout <clears throat> stories, you do get um, these little references to back in the days when these sorts of things used to happen. You do get people saying, you know, a hundred years ago was when fairy kind stalked the earth. Mm. But now, of course, they've been driven so far back that we barely know them. I think that's a slightly different thing in the sense of you still, or even if people were doing that, you know, you do still get people talking, like telling tales based in the 18th and 19th centuries. And yes. All of the social structures, like masters and servants, are all there. So those tales, like they yes. always work. I think the thing about the fairy lands, like being retreated, and you know, the, there's something slightly different about the growth of skepticism and disenchantment, which mm. is, uh, I did a lot about that when we were we were doing history. That was sort of a process that kind of started as far back as the Reformation, uh, Protestants started sort of redefining elements of Catholic belief as superstition and not because they didn't believe them, believe in them, but they wanted to put things out of bounds. And that's yes. why fairies became associated with demons and all that kind of thing. And it's only much later that that, that science and, and rationality also enters into all of mm. that. So that's a slightly different thing. But I do think that there's a thing about the art, about story, oral storytelling, not feeling very like a contemporary skill anymore. And it's it's a shame, and I'll tell you why it's a shame. It's because because it's so accessible. What one of the things that I've loved about creating this series, you know, creating the podcast, creating the illustrations, is something that I've always like growing up and watching. TV series and films and all that kind of thing. I've always, you know, I've, I've wanted to be a writer or an artist or whatever. Mm. Um, and obviously you grow up and you try to do those kind of things, but you, you realise very quickly that unless you're incredibly lucky, unless you become J.K. Rowling yeah. or become one of those writers who gets into the writer's rooms on, on one of those shows, mm. you know, you don't have access to... The, you don't have the ability to make your own TV series. No. Uh, or even to get, you know, like there's, again, it's a very particular mindset where, oh, you know, to be successful as a storyteller, I will have to uh, create a manuscript and send it to an editor who will have to want it to then publish mm -hmm. it and all these kind of things. And I suppose that's one of the great things about podcasting as, you know, sort of a new medium is that it's, all, yeah. it's a form of self-publishing. Yeah. And a, and a DIY um, punk aesthetic. <laughs> We've got going for us. Um, but it's almost like that's a technological thing coming together with, you know, storytelling. Yeah. You know, storytelling, you just, you went and told tales to your family and the pub and all of these kind of places. Yeah. And so now we've created our, series our little canon we've got this kind of like creative ownership of something mm. there's something about public ownership of material as well that's like there are different aspects of it so you know we were talking about the originality thing and um i've talked before about the sort of the modern mythos of uh marvel superheroes or star yeah. wars or something like that and uh you know uh well so so on the one hand there's as a storyteller being uh, entirely nonplussed by um, uh, people who are obsessed over getting every single detail right and lining up from story to story because as a storyteller I'm like 
this is it's storytelling so people are always telling different versions of stories anyway yeah. so if people are getting the details wrong you've got to think of it as storytelling not as like the perfect in aspect history of what actually happened from moment <laughs> to moment but also like the the sense that you know it, it comes up now in a lot of sense talking about the problematic aspects of it but almost a sense that some some things have become so popular that fans feel like they they partially own it yeah um and and there you know there's a part of me that sort of the anarchic anarchic kind of or a slightly anti-capitalist thing is very much like well yeah after a certain point star wars should enter the public realm and anybody should be able to make a star wars film and and uh, you know that's how storytelling works. Yeah, that's how you know anybody could tell different stories about uh, you know Zeus or Athena or that kind of thing. And that's sometimes how stories change. It's it's all it's how people kind of coalesce around certain stories and say, oh, like these are the stories that we keep telling, and is that the real version? And people could come up with the uh, you know different traditions about these characters and things uh, it, it would be quite fun so that's our vision for human society yeah one one day one you'll day. be listening to the the folklore podcast where people tell the legends of star wars <laughs> and yeah. and, uh, and some people will uh, tell a different version of the last jedi that fixes all of the things that they hated about <laughs> it um, and and i will tell a version that will probably enrage most of those people even more. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's an interesting thing though, because you know, in in that capitalist sense, you've sold off the the ability to make Star Wars to um, a man who you're reliably sure will make the kind of Star Wars that appeals to a mass audience, i.e., the Star Wars films that have already been made. <laughs> You've been listening to Law Talk, part of the Law and Legends Storytelling podcast series. If you're interested in finding out more about Agnes Bratton and the authorship of the Buried Moon folktale, then there is a link to Maureen James's PhD dissertation available on the blog post for our Buried Moon episode on the Law and Legend website. If you're interested in learning more about Spurtles or the World Porridge Making Championships, you can find out a little bit about the folklore of Spurtles from an article by Anna Louise Batchelor at www.theporridgelady.com. And the World Porridge Making Championship has a website at www.goldenspurtle.com. They also have pages on Facebook. Direct links are now available on the Law and Legend blog post for The Dark Tower. Parrot culture, our 2,500-year-long fascination with the world's most talkative bird by Bruce Thomas Burr, is available from University of Pennsylvania Press. The 70 Tales of the Parrot is a collection of Indian stories originally written in Sanskrit a translation from the original manuscripts by Indian diplomat and scholar A.N.D. Haksar is available and can be ordered online. Links for both books are now available in our blog post entry for the Lady Isabel episode. Part three of this edition of Law Talk of Lisa and Lady Isabel will be available to download tomorrow. Music in this episode was composed and performed by Robert Bentall. On November 14th, 
you'll be able to hear our next guest episode where short fiction writer Sarah Pearl shares her unique take on the legend of the last wolf in England. We'll also be releasing our first bonus episode of the podcast, The Legend of Humphrey Head. This episode will be available to download for free from Lauren Legend's Gumroad page, but we'll be requesting that you do consider a donation for downloading this extra content. I hope that you've enjoyed part two of this edition of Law Talk. Thank you for listening, Storyfolk.